Hello, and uh, thank you for joining us for another edition of Stratfor Talks, a podcast focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratfor.com. Uh, I'm Cole Altum, I'm the managing editor here at Stratfor. And uh, at the beginning of 2016, Stratfor released our annual forecast, which we do every year, for key trends and political developments that'll shape the year ahead. And on today's podcast, uh, we'll speak with Vice President of Global Analysis, uh, Riva Gajon, to see how we fared. Every year, we do a scorecard to sort of hold ourselves accountable for the things that we say and the assertions that we make. 2016 was a tricky year for everybody, and we'll get into that a little bit more here in a second. But we're also going to look ahead to see what's in store for 2017. Uh, after that, Trap 4 Vice President of Africa Operations, Mark Schroeder, answers one of our listener questions about South Africa's relationship to the rest of the continent. And then uh, my colleague, Evan Reese from our editorial team, shares some highlights from Stratfor's latest holiday gift guide. Thanks for joining us. I'm sitting here with Riva Gujon, Stratfor's Vice President of Global Analysis. Right now, we're, we're wrapping up our annual forecast right now for uh, 2017, and that's going to come out soon enough. But part of that process is uh, we, we like to take a look back at the year, even strange years like this year. It, it's almost become a cliche to say that 2016 has been like such a crazy year, but it is. And so that makes it m- more important now than ever to be accountable for some of our things. And we, we, we publish something every single year. We call it our scorecard, where we look back at some of our forecasts throughout the year and we assess ourselves um, to see how well we did, how poor we did. That's going to come out alongside our annual. And, uh, and I want to talk to you, Riva, about that. I guess my first question would be, tell our listeners why we even have that at all. Why is that important for us as a company to hold ourselves accountable for some of these forecasts that we make? Yeah, I think it would be far easier for us to just launch into our forecast and say, here's what we think. And, you know, we can all have amnesia for better or for worse on what we said before. But no, the accountability really matters. And especially given growing uncertainty in the world and everybody asking themselves these questions that have very core geopolitical foundations to them, you know, we have a methodology at Stratfor that says even with all of this volatility that there is something actually predictable amid the chaos. And that's when we focus on the structural forces that are reshaping the global order. And so the more volatility and the more big personalities that we see emerge, the better the test for the method, right? Because if we are focusing on those structural forces, you know, the foundational elements, and we are looking past the noise and the headlines to say, no, this is how it's going to shape up, even if it doesn't look like it right now, this is how things are converging that's the test of of the geopolitical method. So it's just as important for us to be very honest with what did we nail and what did we get wrong? How did we get that wrong? And where was our our focus misaligned? I think we owe that to our readers um to be honest about that. No, I agree. It's 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 easier I think to to just say Duterte's nuts or to say that Orbán's a, a fascist and just move on with your life. But that's it's not necessarily the case, um, given what they have to deal with on a daily basis as well. Um, so with that in mind, um, what did we get right this year? There's there is a lot of ground to cover. Again, a lot of a lot of things happened this year. But let's start. Let's start with one of the things we, we did really, really well. Well, if you remember at the end of last year, this was when Turkey and Russia were in a big crisis with the Turkish shoot down of a Russian jet over Syria. That was a major geopolitical event, two big adversaries, um, and the question was, okay, now what, right? 
Turkey was still staying on its side of the border. The Syrian civil war was raging on. Russia had deepened its presence in Syria. And with the shootdown, we saw basically then Turkey's vulnerability had risen to a big degree because Russia was essentially threatening to shoot down Turkish jets in retaliation. So we have this long-term forecast that says Turkey has these geopolitical imperatives to extend to its former Ottoman sphere and with a particular focus in northern Syria and northern Iraq and that there were several things driving it. One was the Turkish need to drive a wedge between Kurdish autonomous zones and prevent the expansion of Kurdish autonomy. Two was the the jihadist threat and Turkey facing that bigger risk. But three was this longer term, more ambitious goal where Turkey, as you know, a moderate Islamist rooted government, is looking to uh, you know expand its influence in the wider region and have other Islamist governments throughout the region emerge and look to Ankara for tutelage and and guidance. And that's a long-term Turkish goal is for Syria to switch back to Sunni control. And then that's where we would see this emerging Turkish-Iranian competition. So the question was, with this Turkish-Russian confrontation, would Turkey be constrained and not be able to move? And at that point, it was really hard to say what Turkey would do next because the Russian threat was there. But we said, look, one way or another, Turkey is going to be in northern Syria and northern Iraq in a significant way by the end of the year. We don't know exactly how it's going to roll out. We don't know exactly how the Turks are going to negotiate with the Russians, how bad that confrontation is going to get. But we know that Turkey is going to feel this push, uh, you know, given where the trajectory of the Syrian civil war, given its imperatives, that it would be there. And lo and behold, we saw Turkey move into northern Syria. It's now in the process of anchoring itself in the strategic town of Al-Bab in northern Aleppo. And in northern Iraq, we always said, keep an eye on the Turkish quiet military presence there that had been there for a long time and that how Turkey would use the fight against Islamic State to legitimize itself as a security guarantor. And now going into 2017, that's exactly the case, right? You see Turkey anchoring itself in both northern Syria and northern Iraq, and that competition between Turkey and Iran escalating in a very big way. Yeah, the the Syrian battlefield is getting a lot more crowded. Turkey's inclusion is one thing. U.S. and Russia have always been sort of active there for a while. But they really started, uh, I guess you could say, escalating their own behavior uh, with each other, culminating in a ceasefire that broke down. Absolutely. I mean, the Syrian battlefield was a major um, you know, aspect of this broader standoff between Russia and the United States. And what we laid out in our annual forecast for 2016 was that this standoff would endure, that Russia would use the year to lay the groundwork for this broader negotiation that it's been waiting to have with the United States, where it could use the Syrian battlefield where the United States was already very focused and where a lot of things were going on and where Russia could play the spoiler or the facilitator. But ultimately, Russia wanted to bring that dialogue to much bigger issues. But our forecast was that Russia would try to do that, but the United States would keep its distance. It would deal with Moscow on a tactical level, Syrian ceasefires here and there, that sort of thing. But this was not the time for the United States to make any big strategic concessions to Russia. So the entire time this is happening, Russia is also dealing with its own financial problems, largely out of low oil prices. What did we say about prices or what did we say about market activity specifically 
um, and how is that changing into the new year? So naturally, we couldn't predict the the exact price of oil, but uh, one thing that we really emphasized is in focusing on the Saudi strategy, because when we're talking about, you know, any big price fluctuation through a coordinated move, it all comes down to Saudi policy. And, you know, there's been a lot of expectation really, you know, since late 2014 that, okay, when are the Saudis going to move? When are they going to make a big cut um, and try to boost the price of crude again? But we basically had kept telling our readers, just be patient here because the Saudis were still playing a longer game and they were going to first see how the markets would react to Iran's recovery and return to the markets uh, with the sanctions being lifted, which you know took time for them to build back up to their pre-sanctions levels, although they actually recovered relatively quickly. And so what we said very clearly was that Saudi would first assess the impact from Iran's return, and then it would judge whether it needed to do a coordinated move to cut production in the market and that that would come much later in the latter half of the year toward the end of it. And so that's exactly what we've seen play out is, you know, the Saudis let things simmer. They went to the debt markets. They had to cope with a low price of oil. Other producers had a very difficult year because of it, but they couldn't overreact at the same time. They needed to sort of see how things would stabilize. And now that they're in a better position to stabilize the price, the Saudis are willing to take a cut. And really, they're just they're mainly coming down from their their pre-summer highs. And the Gulf producers are going to be shouldering the burden of that cut. And it's going to take time for North American producers to then take advantage of a higher price of oil to recover their production. So for now, going into next year, we're seeing a modest, and I really have to emphasize modest, um, recovery in the price. But there's still a cap there because, you know, around $60 a barrel, that's where North American producers can start lifting production um, more efficiently and more sustainably. And, you know, that's where we see things balance out again. Those are some of the things that we got right, right? And now that we're all done singing our own praises, um, there are some other things that, that we weren't quite as accurate on, you could say. And I think uh, the big elephant in the room is the Brexit, right? Took a lot of people by surprise, uh, ourselves included. Now, we've always had sort of a sort of a uni- unique take on that. I mean, like we, we, we've always said that the United Kingdom is sort of this weird outlier in the, the, the European experiment. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, we've even said that when the European Union does start to go, it would start with the UK, but we could never pin down exactly when that would be, right? Yeah, and this is definitely where we we fall on our sword, you know, where with the Brexit, it was it came down to a vote, right? And a vote in a referendum, that's extremely difficult to predict. And that's where, you know, when we step back, as you said, you know, we have this broader forecast and this trend line that we've been following on the European fragmentation, where we said that, you know, since 2008, that this was an existential crisis, that yes, you're going to see all kinds of mechanisms come together within the Eurozone to hold things together, all kinds of band-aids applied, but the fundamental forces are pulling this continent apart again. There's this very big divide, north-south divide, uh, with the French on one side and the Germans on the other, and that polarization uh, would would create 
that existential divide for the Eurozone. And so as the, the European continent was going to fragment and, and start to break up into these regional blocks where countries would band together with like-minded interests, we always knew and said in our analyses that the UK would be among the first out the door. And that's ingrained in the UK's geopolitics. It's always kind of kept its distance from the continent's feuds, doesn't want to get entangled in it, and makes sure it's it's the ultimate offshore balancer on the Atlantic where it can, you know, if Europe has its problems, it still has a close relationship with the United States. It has options, essentially. And at the same time, we knew and we had talked about that since 2008, one of the biggest consequences of that economic crisis was the rise of nationalism. And that was extremely prevalent in Europe. And so we had the narrative here. We knew this was the broader force in play. And when it came down to this Brexit vote, we couldn't say for sure that this was the moment, the event that would send the UK out. It could be this vote. It could be another vote down the line. But that's where we made the mistake is we tried to predict a vote. And in our space, we we live in a very strategic space. And that's our niche. And within that space, you can't reliably predict an election like that or a referendum. And we should have stayed more focused on that broader trend line and show how Brexit was really the catalyst for something that had been underway for a very long time. What's what's really interesting to me about that, too, is that 2016 was was almost going to be a holding pattern type year. I mean, as 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 un, as unpredictable as the the Brexit may have been for us and for a lot of other people. At the same time, as we said, the UK has always been it's kind of been its own thing out there, and you could probably make an argument that the 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 European Union can and will endure without the United Kingdom if that ever comes to pass. In 2017, you've got votes in France and Germany, founding members of the EU, which may even call the whole thing into question. Yeah, I mean, we said in 2016 would be more of a transition year uh, for Germany and France uh, in the buildup to very pivotal elections in 2017. And these are the two pillars of the European Union. So for for those two key pillars, it was more about what was the buildup of nationalist forces that would, you know, really underpin the potential for a Eurosceptic win in France that would further polarize Germany in the north. And, you know, it's not even so much about saying that, okay, Marine Le Pen is going to win the election in 2017. We doesn't, can't... doesn't matter, right? Well, we can't reliably say that. That's the that's the, the lesson from the referendum as well, is that it's an election point. And regardless of whether Marine Le Pen wins, there is this underlying Eurosceptic element in France, this nationalistic force. Well, that's that's kind of sort of my point when I mean it, it, it doesn't matter. Of course it matters, but at the same time, the, that's already influencing decision-making no matter who wins. Right. And, you, you, and you start to see some of these about-faces from, from Merkel and some of these other people too who are who are doing things to, to cater to that electoral block. But time matters, right? And inertia is one of the really key challenges in geopolitical forecasting because could we see a win in France next year for Marine Le Pen in the National Front? Possibly. 
It may not be the most likely scenario, but it's possible. When we step back and we can say, yeah, it's still moving in this direction where France and Germany are pulling apart and France is is moving in this Eurosceptic direction. And even with the moderates winning in France, France is still moving down this line because the moderates are adopting parts of the the Eurosceptic platform because they need to survive politically. But the timing matters because if... There is a win by the National Front. And there if there is a referendum on France's role and position in the Eurozone, that, of course, is going to create a huge market reaction. That would be the beginning of the end of the Eurozone. That's when Germany makes its contingency plans. Everybody starts to break up in those blocks. So it's a matter of how soon does it happen? Same thing with the Brexit vote. And that's where, again, we just we need to build out those scenarios. And internally, we've done a lot of work in looking at how, for example, next year, France, Germany, and Italy, votes in each of those countries will play off of each other. And ultimately, what does that mean for the shape of Europe? And in some cases, one result will catalyze the effect. In other cases, a result could arrest it. But the outcome is still the same. And that's where we have to keep updating our readers through our forecast, because remember, we also do our quarterly forecast to say, all right, we're here now. Here's that broader trend line that we laid out. But here's where we're moving toward now that we've reached this inflection point. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Riva. Riva Gajana, Stratfor's Vice President of Global Analysis. And uh, now we'd like to take a moment to look at the topic suggested by one of our listeners. Miguel wrote in to ask about the relationship between South Africa and the rest of the African continent. And for insight on that, we're joined by Mark Schroeder, Stratfor's Vice President of Africa Operations. Mark? South Africa has a very strong relationship with the rest of Africa. However, it's one that you know is, is unique and, and sensitive. Given South Africa's strengths economically on the continent, Given its advanced degree of industrialization, its maturity as a democracy, it really is unique and set apart from many other countries on the continent. And that has generated positive but also you know, sensitive relationships on the continent. Some countries you know, appreciate South Africa's role as a leader on the continent. Others are more resistant to South African efforts to guide and shape and influence what happens on the rest of the continent. Now, do those relationships uh, vary geographically by region? Africa is really, really big. There's no reason South Africa would interact with West Africa the same way it would interact with uh, East Africa and South Africa and so on. They do. South Africa looks towards the continent in degrees of separation. Its primary area of interest is that region that it borders, the southern African part of the continent. South Africa also looks to the other regions of Africa for influence and engagement, looks to West Africa, looks to East Africa, and other parts. But the further it gets from its backyard in southern Africa, the less that it is engaged. Perception-wise as well, These other regions of Africa look to their own leaders. And in the case of West Africa, this would be Nigeria. In the case of East Africa, it could be Kenya or Ethiopia. And they don't really 
look to South African leadership when it comes down to influence or decision making or trying to, you know, shape geopolitical outcomes in those other parts of Africa. South Africa might think that it has a role to play in these other regions such as West Africa or East Africa, but really that's a stretch for South Africa to engage itself in that way. And 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 these are, you know, differences of perceptions and capabilities that South Africa holds itself and others hold towards South Africa. And what about attracting economic investment both within South Africa and for the broader region? South Africa has done a good job of attracting considerable foreign investment over the last 20 years and certainly since the transition to democracy in 1994. More recently, however, kind of the maturity of the South African economy has meant its attractiveness of foreign investment has softened while other African countries that have emerged uh, since the 1990s have received considerable more investment. South Africa still has its advantages of being a relatively advanced economy and relatively advanced industry, but other countries have received considerable investment for their own natural resources that over the last 10 to 15 years have uh, become accessible thanks to investments in infrastructure, roads and rail and pipelines and things of that nature. Mark, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Mark Schroeder is Stratfor's Vice President for Africa Operations. So I'm Joshua Cook, and we're sitting with Evan Reese uh, of Stratfor's editorial team today to, to take a look at our most recent holiday gift guide. Now, Evan, this is something we've done in the past, I think maybe more as a reading list. Uh, I'm wondering if you can give us a sense of why we selected some of the items on the list this year and what stood out to you. We did one of these back in the summer, uh, just a general reading guide for our users. And this time we wanted to do a more comprehensive list that reflected a lot more the diverse forms of media that we at Stratfor consume. We spent a lot of time sorting through details and things online and news reports, but we also wanted to share with our readers the other stuff that we're consuming that kind of feeds into our pet obsession with geopolitics. I mean, that can run the gamut from we have a Kubrick film on here we have a dense work about uh, mass killing in the Holocaust. We have histories of China. We have novels on here. All of this stuff feeds into our daily work and to our intellectual growth. And we really wanted to present a list that was reflective of who we are. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about the work that happens here with the analysts and the editorial team is just the sheer volume of information that is consumed on a daily basis. I, I think that would astound most people. And, and it's not all just news reports. I mean, just running through data sheets and archives and reporting. And, and sometimes it's nice to have, whether it's a piece of fiction that's still reflective on those same themes to dig into, it sort of changes perspectives and helps evolve perspectives over time. Absolutely. It's like drinking from a fire hose working at Stratfor. Uh <laughs> you adapt eventually. But one of the things that really helps when you're consuming that much data is to be able to formulate it into a narrative, into a story, and to compare it to things you might not consider related at all. You know, if you're reading about oil price fluctuations, there are parallels in history that you can compare things to. There are there are other rational actors that have made similar decisions and you might be surprised what a film brings into your mind and into your analysis or a video game for that matter. 
Yeah, and let's touch on that because I think we had a couple interesting and sort of out of the ordinary selections this year. Uh, let's run through a couple of them. Um, one is actually from one of our board of contributors, Philip Bobbitt, A Shield of Achilles. Uh, what made that one stand out this year, other than the fact that we really uh, have a lot of respect for uh, Mr. Bobbitt's work? Shield of Achilles is written from the perspective of a constitutional lawyer who is an expert in foreign policy as well. So he talks about Western history as the history of different constitutional orders, sort of the skeleton of a society, and how those constitutional orders come into being, how they go into crisis, and then how they change again. Very fitting for recent fluctuations in the U.S. political scene or in Europe, or to be able to compare different regions, you know, how Asia deals with particular thorny geopolitical or foreign policy or domestic policy problems as compared to Western nations. Another one, a China, a macro history. What do we have there? This book is quite interesting because it's it's relatively succinct for what it covers, which is the entire 3,000-year sweep of Chinese history, which might seem obscure and might seem a little bit overwrought. But when you speak to people who live in China or when you speak to Chinese decision makers, you realize that in the same way that in the West we look back to Greece and Rome, they're looking back at a completely different set of parallels and case studies when they make decisions. And understanding that whole saga is is essential to understanding China. This book is great because it actually provides some parallels to U.S. and European history and makes it a little bit more relatable to Western readers without being reductive. So it's quite enjoyable. Touch on European history there, too. I think we have another book, Bloodlands. Uh, What does it cover? So this is by a Yale professor, Timothy Snyder, who recently came out with another book called Black Earth. Snyder writes about the Holocaust. Uh, He speaks multiple languages and his focus is on Eastern Europe. This book is revisiting the Holocaust and recontextualizing it in the entire series of mass killings that stretch from around 1933 to 1945, which killed about 14 million people. And what he does is he combines the mass killings uh, by the Third Reich with the mass killings by the Soviet Union. And he contextualizes uh, what he calls the Bloodlands, which is Europe as caught between Nazi Berlin and Soviet Moscow, this sort of horrifying meat grinder situation that the local population found themselves in. What I think is really interesting is, first of all, it's innately geopolitical because he's talking about a particular territory and a particular region and power dynamics. But also he gets very, very brass tacks about details, and he uses that to build a striking new way of seeing what we think of as a very familiar set of events in the 20th century. I I love this book. I can't recommend it highly enough. Shifting gears to uh, another sort of uh, strain of focus here at Stratfor, technology. Uh, and science. I know we have Werner Herzog's uh, film, Lo and Behold, on the list, uh, which is sort of uh, looking at the internet from a unique perspective. Personally, I'm a huge fan of Werner Herzog. This was nominated by another member of our editorial team. Herzog has this incredible way of taking extremely complex, extremely macro human events and bringing them down to the individual level and presenting them in a striking new way. Lo and Behold is visually beautiful, like all of his films before, and it touches on an array of topics that we write about in a very sober, dispassionate way. Cybersecurity, hacking, automation, the invention of the internet and how that impacts our daily lives. It's a beautiful film, and I really enjoyed it. 
And uh, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, we had some video games on, on the list this year. Not surprising on some level with the, the sense of narrative and history that has sort of driven the video game industry in, in recent years and trying to make it more realistic and more lifelike. Uh, I wonder if you know, what stood out to our editorial team and analysts this go around. So you might be surprised to hear that some members of the Stratfor team are avid gamers, although it shouldn't really be a surprise considering that we do run military simulations. We ran a big one about Ukraine a couple years ago. Video games allow you to think tactically and strategically in a way that a fixed narrative or a film don't necessarily do. This one, Command Modern Air Naval Operations, was nominated by one of our military analysts. And what it really is, is it's an update of the tabletop war games that many of our users knew and loved and perhaps still play for modern times. It automates a lot of the sort of, you know, slow like printing things out and punching them out of cardstock. The or pen and things paper like, work. Yeah, the pen and paper work, um, which a lot of us found extremely enjoyable, but, you know, <laughs> maybe don't fit into the modern lifestyle <laughs> time-wise. The really cool thing about this is that it came out in 2014, but they've sent out a lot of updates, including scenarios that simulate Ukraine and Brexit and things like that. It's pretty fascinating. It, it's one of those things where if you really like to get down into the nitty-gritty details, you're going to really enjoy this game. All right. Um, thank you very much for uh, joining us today to go down through the uh, latest holiday gift guide from Stratfor. Thank you so much, Joshua. And if uh, anyone listening is interested, you can find the full list at uh, stratfor.com and we'll include a direct link to the article in the show notes. So that concludes this episode of Stratfor Talks. If you'd like to look back at our 2016 forecast, we'll include a link in the show notes. And keep an eye out for our 2017 annual forecast coming soon. We'll also include a link to the holiday gift guide and full list of suggested reading and viewing. Thanks to Riva Gujon, Mark Schroeder, and Evan Reese for joining us on the podcast. If you have a question or comment about the podcast or an idea for a future episode, let us know. You can reach Stratford Talks at 512-744-4300, extension 3917, or email us at podcast at stratfor.com. And for more geopolitical intelligence analysis and forecasting, visit us at stratfor.com. Happy holidays, happy new year, and thanks for listening.